Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenius Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 16th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part seven of our presentation of Clifton Emmeheiser's special notices to all who deny to seed line. These past several weeks, we have prefaced these special notice programs by answering some of our critics, and especially or particularly Joseph November, who goes by the alias of Eli James. Unfortunately, some people have once again taken offense to that. But Eli James has been continually criticizing us, meaning both Clifton, Emma Heiser, and I, ever since January 2011, when we parted ways with him, and he has not stopped. Last week, presenting part six of the series, I cited quotations from a January 2016 article where Eli James was still criticizing us. Perhaps he was not really criticizing us. Rather, he kind of makes things up about what we profess, and then he criticizes his own inventions. Why should we not be able to address this? For the most part, I do try to ignore him. I do not care what Eli James believes. But every once in a while, I am compelled to answer and rebuke his treachery because I see that there are otherwise well-meaning identity Christians who have fallen under his spell. So I challenge them to see both sides of the issues and the best way to do that is to exhibit and expose some of the folly behind his claims. Should identity Christians not look at both sides of every dispute? Or should they be worshipers of men? If your pastor cannot be criticized, then he is your idol and you are an idolater. If you cannot examine those whom your pastor is criticizing, then you are no less of an idolater. I have been critiquing Eli James's criticisms of me, and I have supplied links to his articles and have made specific quotations from them. Except for a colorful remark or two, I have not attacked his person. Rather, I have only attacked his claims about scripture and his misrepresentations of our work. If anyone cannot handle that and examine the issues then they are not worthy of the truth. But identity Christians should care for truth, and the truth of Scripture should be their paramount concern. Were there really separate sixth and eighth day creations of man? Is the Bible really written in an absolutely chronological order? Did Yahweh God ever take credit for the creation of the non-Adamic races as we now know them? Those are important questions, and the answers to those questions are necessary components to forming a healthy Christian worldview today. We need to answer those questions truthfully if we are ever to conform ourselves to our God and seek to please him. To teach things which are not true leads to the betrayal of our God and our race. Of course, we would answer all of those questions with negatives, while Eli James would answer them all positively. So we must criticize his works, and as Christians, we have no choice but to rebuke him 
I will never back down from that duty. For several years, Eli James had been bragging that I never answered his crumbs paper. After these last few programs, he can never make that boast again. And his crumbs paper should indeed be entirely discredited. It's not worth the paper it's written on. And it should be discredited, at least in the eyes of those who do really care about the truth. The people who criticize me for criticizing Eli all seem to have an agenda because they complain of my act of criticism, but they never offer to discuss the issues, not once. These people are politicians negotiating the word of God so that they may get along with a greater number of men. Maybe I think too highly of myself, but in my opinion, they are really upset with me because I leave them no space for compromise. My work stands as a testimony against them. It shines the hypocrisy upon them. It illuminates the hypocrisy under which they act. They must either hate me or seek to correct Eli James, but they would rather be lovers of men and not alienate anyone so they can hate me for alienating them. But by the grace of Yahweh our God, we are impervious to their attacks, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. They can all go to hell. I wish that they would stop listening to me altogether so that I would no longer have to hear their whining and witness their vacillation. We will continue our comparisons of biblical interpretation and doctrines in subsequent presentations of this series. For now, we will present Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny to seed line part seven. And we have something special this evening. Since we are at the home of Clifton Emmerheiser himself, he can help us present this paper, and perhaps he would like to chime in. Yeah, I I like the way Bill is uh, redoing these papers, because when I, um, at the time I was writing these papers, I was fairly desperate uh, for information and uh I was going through book after book after book in order to uh, prove two seed line, uh, and and that's that's how I come to write um, twenty four of them. Well, this was two thousand one, two thousand two. We've studied a lot since then. Uh, what we've studied a lot since then. Oh yeah, we uh, since two thousand one when you began the series. Right, and if I was to, had to write these over again. There would be places that I would do differently, but the basic core of the thing is still there. Well, well, of course. But what I'm getting at and what's important is that we understand that no matter how old we get, no matter how much we we think we know, we can always learn new things. Yeah, I, I think if I had a thousand years to spend on this, I, I might uh, 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 scratch the surface a little. Right. I mean, is it, it's... History and scripture, it's a deep subject, and we're always learning. Thank you, Clifton. And, and Clifton will be, he'll, he'll have the opportunity to, to, to interpolate all of the commentary he desires to this evening as we proceed through his paper. This is the seventh in a series of special notices to all anti-seedliners who are opposed to the proposition 
that there are a literal walking, talking, breathing, genetic, satanic seed line people among us in this world. To proclaim otherwise is a declaration that we have no enemy and neutralizes and undermines our defenses against them. To concede such a position is beyond all responsible comprehension, and only those who assume the obligation of pointing out and identifying the enemy are Israel's true watchmen. To brazenly obstruct the message of the true watchmen's warnings is the height of treason. The judgment for interfering with the true watchman in his appointed duty is not a very pretty one. But sad to say that is what many are doing. Again, I would warn you, we are at war. This war has been going on now for over 7,000 years. It is a war between Yahweh and his children and Satan and his children. It is a battle to the death for one or the other. And I have a few comments in, in relation to that. This is what we are up against. Too many so-called identity teachers and pastors have taken much of their denominational baggage into Christian identity, and they carry it with them to this very day. So in reference to Genesis chapter 3, or in reference to the other so-called races of people, or in reference to church rituals or things such as sin, mercy, and punishment, or any of several other facets of Bible and history, they refuse to make any considerations except through the lens of that denominational church doctrine that they still seek to uphold. The Bible is a very simple story, and men who do not like it attempt to complicate it in many ways so as to obfuscate its simple meaning. In the beginning, there were two trees, or two seed lines of people. There was a tree of life, and there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because Yahweh chose to keep some things secret from the foundation of the society, and to reveal them in Christ, we do not really learn the nature of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil until Revelation chapter 12 where we may see that it was a tree grown out of rebellion from God by these so-called fallen angels. In the end, after every branch with which the Heavenly Father did not plant is rooted up, which are ostensibly all of the goat nations, there is only one tree left, which is the tree of life, and it consists only of the sheep nations, 12 types of fruit representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Read Genesis chapters 2 and 3, and Revelation chapters 12 and 22. And the entire scripture fits very neatly into this context. Any deviation from this simple paradigm is a corruption of scripture in order to serve one nefarious agenda or another. Do you have any comments, especially on on, on the, um, the the children of Satan? That I, I see them as a much wider group as just the descendants of Cain. Right. That the, the serpent, the seed of the serpent, would have included all of those fallen angels. Right. And and whatever corruptions they created, 
that make up that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the way I see that. Well, uh, it's kind of like uh, they're creating the, these the same group of people today are creating um, GMOs. Right. And they're going to the part they're they're trying to mix a pig and a human embryo. They've just done that. You've written on that recently. Yeah. I haven't even proof that read that for you yet. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'd like to get that out uh, uh, whenever. But uh, they, uh, they're they in the process of trying to create a, a three-parent baby. Now, can you imagine a three-parent baby? A mommy, a daddy, and a pig? I don't know. Uh, 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 it, it would be, I don't know how many sources. They have to get it down to the basic chromosomes, you know, 46 chromosomes and, and that type of thing. But they're getting a portion here and a portion there and maybe part of a pig. The, 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 the Enoch literature, you've pointed this out many times in your writing, the Enoch literature tells us that the fallen angels mixed their seed with every kind, with all these beasts, and created chimeras and, and corruptions of God's creation. And today we're seeing their descendants do the same very the, the very same thing. And and that's your point. That's what you're getting at. Yeah, right. These people that are destroying and bastardizing the creation right now are the children of those fallen angels that bastardized the creation thousands of years ago. It's the same pattern. Yeah. By, 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 by their fruits, you know them. Yeah. Continuing with Clifton's special notice, part seven. In the last special notice to all who deny two sea blind, part six, we were looking into the writings of Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore as Moore refuses to identify the enemy. He is actually giving them aid and comfort in a time of war. There is no greater act of sedition against Yahweh's kingdom. In special notice number six, Clifton used two illustrations of how Moore shot himself in the foot with his thesis, Seed of Satan, literal or figurative. In his booklet of 27 pages, he misapplied, or actually I would say misdefined, the word enmity in Genesis 3.15 and beguiled in 2 Corinthians 11.3. With this special notice, we will scrutinize more of his suppositions. In analyzing Moore's writings on his anti-seedline argument, one can make some interesting observations. I notice that Moore is working with a limited source of information. It is obvious, now Clifton is determining what sources Moore had used from his writing, it is obvious he has a strong exhaustive concordance of the Bible, along with some unnamed Bible dictionary. It also appears he is quoting entirely from the King James Version. Equipped with this limited source of data, he desires to dictate to everyone else his own unqualified views, which are based on his personal reasoning. From what Clifton observed so far of Moore's work. If he doesn't like what he reads in Strong's, he will switch to his unnamed Bible dictionary in order to pick and choose that which best suits his likes. It is conspicuously obvious he did this 
with the meaning of Seth's name on page 11. If you want to understand what has been cited so far concerning Moore's writings, you might want to get a copy of that special notice, Clifton referring to special notice number six, and we presented that here last week. And Clifton had shown that where Jack Moore was attempting to interpret Genesis 3.15, as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that he had chosen wrong definitions for certain important words. And of course, we cannot tell whether Moore was being deceitful or just sloppy. But in either case, his scholarship was sorely lacking. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Well, uh, he seems to be consistent in um, uh, one of the things he'll do is go along and he'll say one thing and a couple pages later he'll contradict himself. Okay. He, he seems to be consistent in that uh, type of thing. So you, he's pretty hard to follow uh, for that reason. And he, he he tries to define these words in Scripture, and he purposely uses the wrong strong number and defines the wrong word. I, I mean, he may have done it purposely. I, I don't know how you could be that sloppy that consistently. Like I say, I, uh, he was he was in the service, you know, and and I'd sure uh, hate to be uh, uh, in his company, and he'd be in command of the company. And I hate to be. Under his command and service, so I, I don't I don't trust him very well. Well, if, if he had chosen his weapons the way he chose his Strong's numbers, he might be trying to load mortar shells into his rifle. Well, yeah. We'll now continue where we left off with special notice number six in Clifton's <laughs> criticism of Jack Moore in his paper, The Seat of Satan, Literal or Figurative. And Clifton says that in order to show you the next place in his article where Moore shoots himself in the foot, it will be necessary for me to quote a couple of paragraphs from his booklet, Seat of Satan, Literal or Figurative, from page 11. And and let me say that this booklet is available at IsraelElect.com under the References section and under... Colonel Jack Moore. It, it is there. Clifton quoting Jack Moore, but Wise, referring to James E. Wise, who wrote an, an early two C line tract. But Wise states again without any scriptural backing, when Eve stated, I have gotten a man from the Lord, she thought Cain was her firstborn and she thought he was the promised seed. Later, she acknowledged that Abel, not Cain, was the promised seed. Therefore, if Abel was her promised seed, then Cain would have to be the seed or progeny of the serpent. There is absolutely, and, and Moore sounds like he's really twisting that, but that's okay. He's obfuscating it on purpose to take a simple story and make it into something complicated. That's what it sounds like to me, like I discussed at the introduction this evening. There is absolutely no scriptural evidence, Clifton quoting Jack Moore which indicates that Eve thought that Abel was the promised seed. Verse 25, which Wise quotes as confirmation of the statement, merely says that when Eve had Seth, she said, God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. She is merely stating 
and this is Jack Moore, she is merely stating that God gave her a son to replace the one who had been killed. Nothing is said there about a promised seed. 1 John 3.12 does not plainly denote that Cain was the offspring or progeny of the wicked one. Again, this is Jack Moore. The Bible Dictionary says the word Cain means acquisition, which means the act of having one's own, to get or gain through one's own efforts. Seth means to compensate a sprout, and there's another misidentification. It has nothing whatsoever to do with being a substitute as wise avers. I wonder where this man got his information, or if he just dreamed it up. The later seems the more possible. And that's Jack Moore's statement concerning James Wise. And, and in truth, the, the situation is pretty much the opposite, that Jack Moore is just dreaming things up. Clifton says, in response to this statement by Moore, that Moore's last statement here concerning the name of Seth highly suggests his own theological dishonesty. I will show you why. As we know, according to his own words, Moore has both a Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible and an unnamed Bible dictionary. Moore said this on page three. The word serpent, as used here and throughout this chapter, is number 5175 in Strong's concordance. Clifton quoted that to show us that Moore admitted having a Strong's concordance. And Clifton goes on and says that from this statement, we can irrevocably conclude beyond all doubt that he has a copy of the Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible. The question is, why didn't he quote from it in this instance, meaning in reference to the meaning of the name Seth? Again, Moore's statement is, Seth means to compensate or a sprout. A sprout, S-P-R-O-U-T, the, the, like a little seed that sprouts out of the ground when it starts to grow, when it germinates. It has nothing whatsoever to do with being a substitute as wise averse. End of quote. Clifton says that this is what the Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible has to say the name Seth. 8352. Seth, from another Hebrew word, 7896. And it can mean to put, i.e. a substitute, Seth, the third son of Adam. If you will notice very carefully, it speaks of the meaning as being substitute and mentions absolutely nothing about compensate or sprout. You can even go to the word 7896, from which 8352 or Seth is derived, and it suggests no such meaning. Furthermore, Jesenius's Hebrew Calvi lexicon to the Old Testament agrees with Strong's on both words. You will find number 7896 on page 819 of Jesenius's lexicon. Clifton says, I myself have 14 Bible dictionaries or encyclopedias, including Zondervan's five-volume set, the Interpreter's four-volume set, and the popular critical Bible encyclopedia, a three-volume set. In addition to the Bible dictionaries or encyclopedias, I have 13 Bible dictionaries, including the interpreter's 12-volume set. In checking through all these references on the name set, I found only one which suggested a meaning of compensate and another one which suggested a meaning of sprout. 
These last meanings seem to have been an invention of a person by the name of Ewald, for which Clifton asks us to see Unger's Bible Dictionary on page 999. And he says that outside of these two references, these two references that were supplied by this individual named Ewald, most all of the other dictionaries, encyclopedias, and commentaries are generally in agreement with the meaning of Seth as substitute or in place of. I submit, therefore, that Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore had both of these meanings before him, yet he rejected Strong's. He didn't only reject it, he just failed to mention it and claimed that Wise was making things up, which meant that Moore was calling Wise a liar while Moore was looking at the Wise's evidence right before his face. And, and that's a pretty... That's a pretty dastardly thing to do. Moore had both of these meanings before him, meaning the meanings in in Strong's, yet he rejected Strong's in favor of his unnamed Bible dictionary in order to fabricate his point, which he thought nobody would ever notice. This is the epitome of blatant, unabashed, brazen treachery and deceitfulness of the most evil kind. And Clifton, I don't think that you're overestimating the extent of Moore's disingenuity. Yeah, I was choosing my words pretty well. <laughs> he lied. He outright lied. When I put this together. Right. I mean, I think you did very well. I think that you were far too kind on him. I would have called him a clown, at least. <laughs> the guy um, just lied. A, a clown from Turkeyville. Or a turkey from Clownsville. He just lied. Clifton is not overestimating the the extent of Moore's disingenuity here. His examination of Moore's contentions reveals a pattern of shoddy scholarship aimed at purposely discrediting James Wise while practically ridiculing the two seabine position. But Wise was right in his assertions. Continuing with Clifton. Now for a few references to show that James E. Wise was correct when he made his statement that Seth was a substitute or appointed in the place of Abel. And first, Clifton quotes the Pictorial Bible Dictionary by Merrill C. Tenney, who was its general editor, on page 774. Seth, his name, meaning appointed, i.e. substitute, signifies that he was considered a substitute for Abel, citing Genesis 4.25. His birth recalled man's tragic loss of divine image, he became the founder of the line of the faith. And then Clifton quotes the Wycliffe Bible commentary on page 11. The Hebrew word, meaning Seth, word, the Hebrew word shows marked similarity to the word shat, which is translated as appointed or set, which is probably evidence that the Hebrew word set is the origin of the English word set which I would bet. In reality, Seth became the one on whom God could depend as the foundation stone for his family. He was set or appointed to take up the mission and work of Abel. And the Wycliffe Bible commentary, whoever wrote that, must understand more than they let on because they had no qualms in seeing Cain omitted from the picture entirely. Entirely! That the work of Abel was the work of Abel before he was murdered. 
that's what the Wycliffe Bible commentary actually admits there. That Abel had a work and a mission which Cain didn't have even before Abel was murdered. If we read that paragraph again, that paragraph basically shows that the Wycliffe Bible commentary, Clifton, had understood that Cain was eliminated before he killed Abel. Yeah. Because Seth was to continue what was set or appointed to take up the work and mission of Abel. What work and mission did Abel have before he was murdered? He had the, he was the priest. He was the sacrifice that God accepted and Cain was rejected. So there's a, that there's, um, a glimmer of light in the Wycliffe Bible commentary on page 11, as far as I'm concerned. Clifton then quotes the Adam Clark's commentary abridged by Ralph Earl. Eve must have received on this occasion some divine communication. Or else how could she have known that this son was appointed in the place of Abel to continue that holy line by which the Messiah was to come? And then quoting the Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible. Instead of Abel to succeed his father Adam, as Abel should have done in the priesthood and administration and care of holy things in the church of God. Now, there's another very interesting commentary because... Matthew Poole understood that Abel had a priesthood before he was murdered. That Abel had the priesthood and Abel had the administration and care of the holy things of God. Things that typically belong to the firstborn son. And that follows the uh, Melchizedek priest line. Right. That it belonged to Abel, not to Cain. Right. They show us Matthew Poole understood that Abel had a priesthood right there in that paragraph. Yeah. Where's Cain? He's not mentioned. Cain, if, if the Judeo-Christians and the anti-seed liners believe that Cain wasn't rejected until he murdered Abel. But something else is going on there back to the fact that Cain wasn't worthy to sacrifice to God. And these commentators understood that that was Abel's mission. And it's Seth replaced Abel and not Cain. Now, that family priesthood, from tradition, we see in, down to the book of Numbers, belonged to the firstborn son. Why was Cain eliminated? They give no reason why Cain was eliminated. The only possible reason that Cain was eliminated is because Genesis 4.1 is corrupt, and he's not Adam's son. Yeah, and that's another paper I recently. <laughs> that's that's another story, right? Yeah, Cain just wasn't genetically perfect. Well, well, how should a second-born son be charged with the priesthood and administration of the family? In, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, those things belong to the firstborn son, and the firstborn son would have to have a serious transgression, like Reuben had a serious transgression. And forfeited those things. And they were passed among his other brothers. And that seemed to be the argument between uh, Abel and Cain was, was which, which one of them was going to be the priest. It was the battle for the priesthood. priesthood. Abel must have had some good reason to believe that that priesthood belonged to him. For him to be making those sacrifices. And he was accepted. And that's another that, that's another digression. We've already talked about that in the battle for the priesthood, right? Right. You wrote several pamphlets describing that. 
<laughs> Quoting the New World Dictionary Concordance to the New American Bible on page 619, the name is explained, meaning the name of Seth, is explained in popular ethnology, which sees it deriving from the verb Sith, which means to replace. Eve stated, God has granted me another offspring in place of Abel. And Clifton responds to these Bible commentaries and says now that it is conspicuously obvious and we can plainly see this man's agenda, referring to Jack Moore. Let's take a look at how ridiculous some of his conclusions are. Everything he accused James E. Wise of, he is guilty of himself. Let's take a look and see what Moore says about Wise on page 12. And Clifton quoting Jack Moore. But let's analyze Genesis 4-1 very carefully and really see what it says. Not what some man, referring to James Wise, thinks it says. Read it for yourself. It is very clear. I can find no hint in this chapter that Eve thought Abel was the promised seed. How could he, Abel, have been when he was killed? Do you mean that God would have given a promised seed to Eve only to be murdered? It doesn't make much sense, does it? The promised seed was Seth, who God gave her to take the place of Abel. It becomes a gross assumption on the part of the author, referring to James Wise, when he states, because of this, Cain could only have been the progeny of the serpent. When we quote the 1 John 3.12 verse about Cain being of that wicked one, we must see verse 12 in its context. It cannot be lifted out of its proper setting just to prove a point that someone wants to make. And Clifton responds to that, and he says that Moore is totally lacking any insight on this one. We have read several references which show that Seth was an appointed seed in Abel's place, and that this is the very meaning of Seth's name. If Abel was not a promised seed, and I have to interject here that the promise of seed goes back to Genesis 3.15, if Abel was not a promised seed, there would have been no need for his blood to cry from the ground. Why then did Abel's blood cry from the ground? Abel's blood was crying for revenge. Seth became the revenger of blood for Abel, meaning that as long as descendants, legitimate descendants from Seth existed, that Abel's blood will be avenged. Yahshua became the ultimate revenger of that blood and will in time destroy all the descendants of Cain. This whole war is a blood feud. The revenger of blood is spoken of in Numbers chapter 35, in verse 19. The revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meets him, he shall slay him. It appears that Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore has shot himself in the foot on this one also. And we must add that this is why Yahshua Christ had said that the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias shall be required from this race, speaking to the race of the Edomite Jews. Luke chapter 11. Returning to Clifton. And let me see if Clifton has any remarks before we, before we proceed. Do, do you want to um, propound, expound on any of that? Well, uh, yeah, I think you've explained it pretty well. I don't want to put you on the spot. I just thought you might have a thought or two to to get across. I, I, I think we're on a roll. So. That this that this two seed line message, this, this idea that we have a group of adversaries who are who began as our enemies and will end as our enemies, 
and 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 they they are all going to be destroyed, but they have been um, employed in tormenting and tempting us all throughout history. In the meantime, this enmity between these two seed lines. This is the Bible story. It can't be. It it can't be ignored. The, to ignore that aspect of Scripture is basically to deny that God has enemies. Well, they they try to boil it down to. Um, the flesh, the, uh, Satan is the flesh. If you're in a fighting war, in a shooting war, yeah, and you're teaching people that the, those guys shooting at you that they're not your enemies, you're going to get a whole lot of people killed if they believe you, right? And that's exactly what the Jews have done with their power to meteor and oppress. They've convinced us that we don't have any enemies, and these anti-seedliners are playing their game with them, right? Convincing people that we really don't have any genetic enemies. Those people really aren't our enemies. They're possible candidates for Christianity. They're actually leading sheep to the slaughter. And it's amazing uh, the, the number of people that teach identity, most of them uh, are against the two seed line. Right. And, and they all came from churchianity for the most part. Yeah. Clifton continues, if one continues to shoot oneself in the foot long enough, one will find that one doesn't have a leg to stand on. This is exactly what Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore seems persistent in doing as he shoots himself in the foot once again on page 20 of his booklet. As he attempts to show you his great intellect on the subject of race, he goofs again. This is what he said. And Clifton once again quoting Jack Moore here again, we see Wise, James Wise, as he does some more supposing when he states that the word generation could be translated race. If you check your Strong's Concordance, you will find the word generation has five meanings. In the Old Testament, we find the Hebrew word door, Strong's number 1755, which means an age, a dwelling, a posterity. It is used thusly in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Nothing here to do with race. That's what Moore says. We find a second meaning to the word in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, where the word is 1859, a related word, dar, meaning generation. In the New Testament, three Greek words are used for generation. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, here the word is genesis or genesis, Strong's number 1078, which means nativity, figurative, nature, generation. In Matthew 3, 7, we read, O generation of vipers, who has warned thee to flee from the wrath to come? Here the Greek word is genema. Strong's number 1081, meaning offspring, produce, fruit, generation. Of course, they are the Strong's definitions and include how the word was translated in the King James Version. Finally, in Matthew 1241, we read, The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Here the word is Genea, Strong's number 1974. And Apparently, Moore got that wrong. It should have been 1074. And Ganea means a generation, an age, a nation, or a time. 
Moore says, this is the only occasion in the entire Bible where the word generation could mean race, referring to Matthew 12.41. But we see from the context that this is not what it means here. Once again, Wise has borne false witness to what a word means. And of course, there are lots of false witnesses there to the meanings of those words. A generation, a genea, certainly does not mean a time. It only refers to all the members of one race who may be alive at any particular time, depending on the context. Clifton says, as you will shortly see, the false witness is not James E. Wise, but rather Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore. Let's start with the Hebrew word 1755, door, which Moore mistakenly interprets. Wilson's Old Testament word studies on page 184 says this concerning this word. An age, a generation of men, a race of men contemporary, Genesis 6-9. So even Wilson's Old Testament word studies says that the word door means a race of men who are all contemporary and that that is the meaning that it has in Genesis 6-9. And then implying conformity, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 10 through 14. So it may be understood that in that disputed passage, Isaiah 53-8, his generation, the race conformed to the Messiah, equivalent to the seed, in verse 10, Isaiah 53-10, I gather, and Genesis 6-9, etc. And this is more speaking, all or many generations, Hebrew, generation and generation, or every generation, citing several passages in Daniel chapter 4. How would you like to be serving under a jester like Moore, Clifton says, on a battlefront where you and the lives of several thousand others depended on his ludicrous judgment? Continuing now with the Jesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament on the Hebrew word 1755. Among the other meanings, Jesenius says this on page 194. The idea of age or generation being neglected, it often means a race of men. And let me say that it is my opinion that the Hebrew word door is also the Latin, is also the original word from which the Latin word durare was arrived. D-U-R-A-R-E, durare, which means to last or to endure. And it's also, the Hebrew word door, the source of the archaic English word dur, D-U-R-E, which means to sustain or to last, and which is still seen in words such as duration and endor today, and they are derived from it. Where the scripture says in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 9, that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The first word generations comes from the Hebrew word toledah, which means descent or descendants. And the second word for generations is from this word door, where it says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. The original Strong's lexicon defines Hebrew number 1755, door, that word in Genesis 6-9, as being from door, with a different, a slightly different spelling, 
number 1752, which is properly a revolution of time and can therefore be an age or a generation, but can also be a dwelling. And there's a concept there that I think Strong's didn't quite bridge. In turn, the word at 1752, which is also door, they're all spelled roughly the same way, there's slight variations, is a primitive root word, which properly means to gyrate or move in a circle, and also means, and this is what's important, it also means to remain. Now, we may add that the earth, moon, and stars also move in a circle. And the related word at 1754 is also derived from that word, door, and it means a circle, a ball, or a pile. This is an important concept. If we examine all of these definitions, the word door means race in many passages because it is what remains or endures of the original creation. It means to refer to a generation of a race in the cyclical sense that a race regenerates itself and endures in God's creation. That's why it means race in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. If a race corrupts itself, it no longer properly endures. So Noah was perfect in his generations because he and his family had not corrupted themselves. And for that reason, Yahweh preserved them out of all of their contemporaries. Clifton continues, We will not go into every Strong's number reference that Moore mentions here. However, it should be obvious from this last example that Moore doesn't have the slightest idea of what he is talking about concerning the Old Testament. And of course, Clifton is referring to Wilson's Old Testament word studies where they say that the word door can refer to a race of men who are contemporary and also the Jesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon where that says that door can be a race of men. Clifton goes on to say, let's see what more says about the New Testament besides that which is quoted above. If you will recall, Moore is saying the only verse in the Bible that can be rendered race is at Matthew 12:41, and there he states that it doesn't mean race in that case either. In other words, Moore is, in effect, saying there is not one case in the entire Bible that refers to race. Now, that is a bold statement. Let's see if it will hold up under the magnifying glass. In the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament by Spiro Zodiades, in the Greek word number 1078, Genesis, it is described in part as, and, and he quotes, in the passive, Genesis means race, lineage, equivalent to genea. Now, Genesis in Greek would be pronounced genesis. Equivalent to genea, genealogy, or book of genealogy. The book of Genesis is the book of genealogy. That's what Zodiades is saying. And he goes on to say, metaphorically, spoken of the people of any generation or age, those living in any one period, a race or class. You can see very clearly then, Clifton says, contrary to more, these two words, Genesis and Genea, do imply race. Clifton continues and says on page 22, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore says this, 
God had appointed his Israel people to be a special, holy people, who according to 1 Peter 2.9 were to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, meaning set aside for a special purpose, that ye Israel should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there seems to have been something that dropped from the original there because there's some apparently missing words, but that's the way it's quoted, and that's the way it appears in our copy of Moore's paper. If Moore had, Clifton continues and says, if Moore had an American Standard Version of the Bible, he could have observed that chosen generation in this particular verse is rendered an elect race. Moore is way off base when he claims that this is the only occasion in the entire Bible where the word generation could mean race. But we see from the context that this is not what it means here. Evidently, Moore is unaware of how to find the subject of race in the Bible. If we will turn to the word generation in W.E. Vines, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, it will direct us to go to page 291 for the word kind. Here is what it says under this heading. Genos, akin to genomahi, which is a verb, to become, denotes a family at Acts chapter 4, verse 6, kindred in chapter 7, verse 13, a race, or in the King James, kindred at Acts chapter 13, verse 26, a stock or an offspring in Acts 17:28. In Revelation 22:16, it's a nation or a race. In Mark 7:26, a race where the King James has nation. Acts 4:36, where it describes a man of Cyprus by race, of the country of Cyprus. Genos does not mean a country. The word signifies parentage. And Judeans had settled in Cyprus from or even before the reign of Alexander the Great. In 719, it means race, as it's translated in the revised version, but in the authorized version as kindred. In Acts 18.2 and 24, it's race. Or in 2 Corinthians 11.26, it's countrymen. Or in Galatians 1.14, countrymen, where the King James has nation. In Philippians 3.5, it means stock. In 1 Peter 2.9, race. Or, is in the King James Version, it is generation. They're pointing out that all these places, the word means, W.E. Vine is pointing out that in all these places, even though the King James didn't always translate it as race, the word means race. And he points out, the same thing as he proceeds in 1 Peter 2.9, in Mark 9.29, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 10 and 28, where the King James has diversities and, and the revised version has kinds. And the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14.10, the word means race. With this kind of a foundation to work from, Clifton says, one should be able to find hundreds of passages on race. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore couldn't be more mistaken in his assertions on these Hebrew and Greek words. Now, who is really the one doing the assuming and being intellectually dishonest? And Moore really shot himself in the foot, and this is my comment, Moore really shot himself in the foot not recognizing his own hypocrisy 
inciting 1 Peter 2, 9, yet refusing to accept the concept of race. If it only meant a generation in 1 Peter 2, 9, if these people were a holy generation, right, or a chosen generation, then those words in Exodus chapter 19, which Peter cites, would have referred only to a single generation because the same type of words apply, the the same type of words were used in Exodus chapter 19 of the ancient children of Israel. So there, they would have only referred to a single generation. The Israelites who then sinned and were destroyed in the desert, that's who it must have referred, were, were those Israelites who sinned and destroyed in the desert? They were a chosen generation in Exodus chapter 19, if you want to insist that the word means generation. They were a chosen race. That They were a holy race. That That's what Peter is referring to. He's referring back to Exodus chapter 19. He's speaking to the descendants of the ancient children of Israel and calling them a holy or a chosen race. So if it only referred to one generation, it could only have referred to that one generation that died in the desert. Were they chosen to die in the desert? Or, or were they chosen for all time? Yahweh chose the children of Israel for all time, not merely to die in one generation in the desert. Peter insists that those words describe the Christians of his own time who were descendants of those ancient Israelites. And therefore, the term must describe a race and not merely a generation. Jack Moore was like as bad as any Judeo-Christian Baptist pastor on, on this subject. He was terrible. What was they calling that one guy a, a Baptist ass clown? A Baptist ass clown. Jack Moore sounds like a Baptist ass clown. Yes, Clifton. <clears throat> Back to Clifton. He says that we should take note that Jeffrey A. Weekly, who Clifton addressed earlier in the series, and will probably address some more later in the series, Jeffrey A. Weekly highly recommends Jack Moore for his expertise concerning the so-called fallacy of the subject of the seed line doctrine. This is what he said in his The Satanic Seed Line, its doctrine and history on page 29, and Clifton quoting Jeffrey Weekly. There are other arguments, but the ones addressed here are the major ones that I have encountered. If you have encountered an argument and you are sincerely seeking an answer, I suggest that first you completely study it out in God's word. Look up definitions, maybe with the wrong Strong's numbers. Check parallel passages, maybe from the wrong books. Be sure of context, etc. After that, I suggest you contact men such as Pete Peters, Dan Gentry, Earl Jones, Jack Moore, etc. And Clifton says, I guess the old saying is still true. Birds of a feather really do flock together. And, and it's my opinion that every one of these men may be held dear to certain identity Christians. And they all helped at least some of us along the path to the truth. But every one of these men also had denominational Christian baggage, which they failed to shed. And we must therefore learn from their mistakes that we all must seek to continue learning. And we all must understand that there is more for every one of us to learn. Rather than being arrogant to think that we know it all, as I myself have seen Pete Peters and Ted Wheeland and other such men think, 
We must forever be studying and testing and willing to honestly discuss our beliefs. Maybe you have something to say. It's just an opportunity. Well, it amazes me to go back over what I wrote uh, so long ago and, and really uh, be amazed. You know, how did I ever do that? Right. Right. You're, you're both amazed how you did it. And, and then sometimes I'm, when I read some of my oldest material, I'm amazed at how I screwed certain things up and, and or, or how well, I, I do that, too. <laughs> In, in other words, we have to constantly inspect ourselves and, and be willing to learn. We're never there. Well, I try to learn by my, by my mistakes. Right. Uh, and, I, and I usually try not not make that mistake again. Well, well, I like to pray that I catch my mistakes instead of somebody else catching them. Yeah. <laughs> Clifton continues under the subtitle, Confusion Concerning Trees. And he says, on page six of Moore's Seed of Satan, literal or figurative, he continues to lambast James E. Wise. As we will see, Moore's criticism of what Wise say, was saying is totally unwarranted. This is what Moore says in his conjecture. Wise then goes on to make some very positive statements, which I do not believe he can back with scripture. This is Jack Moore. At least he doesn't do it here. He says, therefore, because of the explanation he has given, that which is spoken of or called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the devil. In other places, he is called the devil, Belial, etc. But there is no scripture which will back up his contention, no matter how much you want to believe there is. The idea that Satan or the devil was the seducer of Eve in the garden may fit in with your theological concept, but Moore says... It's not what the word says. And I would say, on my own part, that it would be our contention that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a collective reference to the angels that sinned, the angels who left their first estate, the fallen angels described as having been cast out into the earth from heaven in Revelation chapter 12. And in that chapter, the chief of those fallen angels is the great dragon. And is identified with that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So we would assert that all of these epithets all describe the same collective entity and are also related to the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15. All of the accursed races of scripture intermingled with these and they still exist today. Continuing with Clifton, where he is quoting Jack Moore's undue criticism of James Wise, Moore continues and says, the author then mentions, the author meaning James Wise, the author then mentions other trees in the garden when he says in Genesis 2.9, God first mentions the stationary trees, pecan, peach, apricot, etc. For the life of me, I can't find any of these trees listed anywhere in the Bible. The apple tree is listed, but no pecan, apricot, or peach. If he's imagining these trees in the garden, maybe he's imagining when he says Satan was there too. If a man will add words which aren't there in order to sell his point, he's not to be trusted in his explanation. This man is intellectually dishonest and willing to twist scripture to make it say what he wants to. And before I continue with this quotation, I'm just going to say that the Bible does say that Satan 
was in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible does say that, but it doesn't say it until Revelation chapter 12, because it says that that great dragon is that old serpent and Satan. So Jack Moore is a liar. The Bible does say it. Jesus Christ says it in Revelation chapter 12. That's a blatant lie that it doesn't say that Satan was in the garden because it says it in Revelation chapter 12. Continuing with Moore and his quote and his criticism of James Wise, he then goes on to the tree of life. He indicates that these trees were personalities of some kind or other. Although the Bible says these trees in the, in the original language were trees and that is what they were. No chance to make them anything other than trees. And Clifton responds and says, there you have it. Moore just called our Messiah a wooden tree. Who else but our Savior is the tree of life? How else do we eat of him but by taking communion? How much more blasphemous a remark can there be made than this? And Clifton, we spoke about this before the program because I, I, I said that this is the only place in this paper that I might criticize you a little bit. Maybe I'll give you the opportunity to, to, to correct that. Well, if I had to, to go over, I wouldn't have included that. Well, I didn't think it was that bad. It's just the, the view of communion and, and what it is. It was some of my baggage from churchanity, and, and I have to admit that. We all have some, and, and you're a great man for admitting that. That, that, makes, that makes you a better man than Jack Moore, because I'm sure he wouldn't own up to some of his lies here. <laughs> I think Clifton may have displayed a little denominationalism here. It, it is my opinion that we eat at a tree of life by loving our brethren clinging to our own race, succoring and receiving succor from our own people, the race of Adam. That is true communion. When we do that, when we stick to our own kind, we eat from the tree of life because we do what Christ wants us to do, which is to love one another. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he said, I give to you a new commandment to love one another. When we do that, we eat from the tree of life. The sin, the original sin was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every time we see a white Israelite person or a white Adamic person race mixing, they're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every time that they're caring for these other races and giving their gifts to these other races, they're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than from the tree of life. They're doing things which lead to death. That's the way I see it. Back to Clifton. He says that Moore is totally inaccurate when he claims the pecan, peach, and apricot trees are not mentioned in Scripture. He just didn't look for it. These trees are included, well, it's obvious they should be. These trees are included in Genesis 129 when it says, And Yahweh said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree yielding seed to you it shall be for meat. Moore is making an insinuation that this couldn't include a pecan, peach, or apricot tree, which have seeds. Moore is not only blasphemous, but totally unskilled in Yahweh's word. Yet, inasmuch as all the trees bearing seed were permitted by Yahweh to be eaten as food in Genesis 129, the trees of Genesis 3 couldn't have been fruit trees. Why would Yahweh allow the fruit of the trees of Genesis 129 to be eaten? And then turn around and go back on his own word and make it unlawful to eat from one of them in Genesis chapter 3. Talk about something that don't make any sense. As Jack Morris said, 
himself several times in this booklet. There is simply no better argument that the trees of Genesis 3 were not wooden trees than this passage. As Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore himself had said, God is not the author of confusion. And yes, Clifton, that was a very good analogy. Clifton says, I wonder how Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore might interpret Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 24, which says, And he cometh, meaning Christ, and he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. And I really do believe Clifton is right about this, that some sayings of scripture were designed simply to open our minds to certain concepts and that this passage is indeed one of them. So Clifton continues and he says, oddly enough, the word tree in this passage also means a solid wooden tree. Let's now check Strong's Thayer and Zodiates to see what they have to say about the Greek word 1186, which is the word for tree, dendron. Strong says that dendron is from drus, an oak, and it means a tree. Thayer, Thayer's Greek English Lexicon in the New Testament, page 128. To grow to the shape and size of a tree, under 1186, that's what it says in part. And the Complete Word Dictionary, New Testament, by Spiro Zodiades. Dendron, a noun, a tree. To become a tree means to become like a tree in size. Citing Mark chapter 4, verse 32, where it says, I see men as trees. And Zodiades says that, that means not distinctly, but in an unusual size. And Clifton asks, when was the last time you saw a solid oak tree just down the street, about 175 feet high with a trunk five feet in diameter, pull up its roots and start walking? It is obvious the Bible is using figurative language many times when it speaks of trees. Hence, the answer to Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore's question on his thesis, Seed of Satan. Literal or figurative? Lieutenant Colonel Jack Moore goofs again on page five of this booklet. Moore argues thusly about the word tree in Genesis 3.17. And Jack Moore says, While Eve had been warned by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he has said nothing to her, which is recorded about touching it. Referring to Genesis 3.17. Eve was, and he cites that. Eve was the one who added the touching business when she talked with the serpent. Like so many of our people, she thought she had to add to the word. The author, James E. Wise, then goes on to surmise, since he had no scriptural proof, that the trees in the garden were not made up of sap, bark, and foliage. In other words, these trees were not really trees, since trees cannot discern between good and evil. Yet nothing written in the scripture indicates that these trees, whatever they may have been, we're supposed to do any discerning. The word tree, as used in this passage, comes from the Hebrew word etz, 6095, and means a tree for firmness, hence wood, gallows, held, stock, timber, tree, or wood. Absolutely no indication here that it refers to a person or being of any kind, such as a serpent or Satan. He goes on to compound 
his strange explanation by stating that these trees were endowed with the gift of speech. Show me anywhere where the scripture so states. If Moore is correct, and first let me say that Moore is awfully um, insolent, I think, when, when he's picking on Eve for adding the touching business. Moore is bordering on insolent by trying to, well, well, by asserting that he can understand that Eve added things to Scripture. By making that assertion, Moore is being pretty precocious in, in, in that that's probably too nice of a term. He, he, he's basically an arrogant bastard by second guessing the scripture and the words it interprets to Eve. That's how I feel about that. If Moore is correct about these trees, that they have to be literal wooden trees, then where Christ had referred to every plant, which my heavenly father had not planted, he must have been talking about literal plants. Perhaps he may blame poison ivy or certain types of noxious thistle on the devil. There are many other plant and tree metaphors in scripture which really refer to races of people, which more would have to explain away. His interpretations of Genesis chapter 3 are childish. They're childish. I have no other explanation for them. They're just childish. It's like a ranting little kid insisting that something doesn't mean something. Clifton continues and he says, what is noticeable here is that Moore says the word for trees in Genesis 3.17 is 6.095. It is not, however. It is 6.086. 6.086 is from 6.095, but it is not 6.095. The Hebrew word 6.095 is atzah, not Etz, which is 6086. Actually, what Moore does here is to correctly apply Etz, but then goes on to use Strong's definition for Atsa, quite a deceptive maneuver, I would say, anything to make his point. There could be quite a difference between these two words. This is what Wilson's Old Testament word studies has to say about the word tree. On page 453, a tree, often collective, the trees in Genesis chapter 111 and, and forward. Figuratively, trees represent men. Green trees are the righteous. Dry trees are the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 47. Chapter 17, verse 24. All the trees of the field, all men. The high tree, lofty and powerful. The low tree, the weak and contemptible. And there are many, many tree allegories that stand for people and plant allegories that refer to really, really mean to describe people, not only in Ezekiel, but in Jeremiah and other prophets. From this definition by Wilson, Clifton says, we can clearly see the Hebrew word etz, as used in Genesis 3.17, can be used both literally and figuratively. Moore's argument that it can only mean a literal tree is completely flawed. This goes for all the other anti-seedliners who use this point of contention to establish a false premise. When one considers how dangerous it is to life and limb to present the two seedline message, it is quite inconsiderate of the anti-seedliners to harass the messenger in his duty to his maker and his kingdom. 
By doing this, the anti-sea liners are actually aiding and abetting the enemy in this time of war. It is tantamount to defecting over to the enemy's side when millions of lives of our brethren are at stake. Such treason is more damaging in effect than the evil satanic enemy can bring about. And this is absolutely true, and Clifton is being kind where he says it is quite inconsiderate of them to do such a thing. The anti-seedliners, those allegedly Christian identity pastors and teachers who deny the reality of race in scripture are indeed assisting Satan in the slaughter of our race. Among those still living are Ted Wheeland, James Brueggemann, Stephen Jones, Dave Barley, Richard Niemella, and in a more subtle way, Eli James and all those who follow him, those whom we refer to as the 85% club. Race means something in scripture, but not really that much, because we can cut it a few points. Identity Christians must forsake all of the charlatans who fall short of this gravely important truth. I will let Clifton Emmerheiser have the last word. Well, this has been an interesting rework of my um, uh, paper, the seventh paper of uh, to all uh, who deny to seed line. And Bill has done a very good job of uh, adding comments that uh, go along with uh, what I originally wrote. Well, maybe before I finish all 24 of them, you'll write some more. I've thought about it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you, Clifton Emmerheiser. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.